0: While most patients view hospitals as a place of healing, providers know that in some cases, hospitalization can be a source of harm. Medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the US and most occur during hospitalization.
1: So being a hospital patient has been called, quote, one of the most disempowering situations one can experience in modern society.
0: That's Dr. Richard Milani, Chief Clinical Transformation Officer at Oshner Health. He's led some truly cutting edge initiatives at Oshner Health including the integration of their EHR, EPIC, into the Apple Health Toolkit. Ashner Health also recently won the Microsoft Health Innovation Award. On this episode of Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association, Dr. Milani outlines the need for innovation in the inpatient setting and offers tangible solutions that can drastically improve patient outcomes. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the AMA. This episode of Moving Medicine is one of two parts about healthcare innovation. The speech was presented at the 2018 AMA Annual Meeting in Chicago. Here is Dr. Richard Malani.
1: We, meaning the the whole world from a healthcare perspective, has a problem in our hospitals. These are not safe places. Now, they're necessary places, uh, but it's the third leading cause of death in the United States you know, medical errors mostly occurring during hospitalization. So it's about 400,000 lives each year. If you're a Medicare patient, it's a one in four chance of receiving harm during your hospitalization. And then from an infectious disease standpoint, you'll develop an infection about one in 25 people, more so even in the UK. Um, And then talk about loss of control. It's shocking when you take a step back and think about the life of a hospitalized patient. You come in, I take your clothes away from you. I put you in a gown. I put a name tag on you with a number on it. I throw you in a room. I come in when I choose to. I don't tell you much, I try. I don't tell you what's gonna happen, what just happened. I don't give you results. I, I overload you at one time when I make my rounds and of course you absorb 5% of that and then your wife or husband shows up and what did the doctors say, I don't know. It goes on and on and on. So being a hospital patient has been called, quote, one of the most disempowering situations one can experience in modern society. About 90% of hospitalized patients want to review their hospital meds, but only 28% have ever been given the opportunity. And then the scariest thing of all, only about a third of hospital patients can correctly name even one of their hospital physicians. Just one. Only a third. That means two-thirds can't name any. And some of us have grease boards, and a lot of good that does. It's doctor, and there's 100 people walking in with coats in and out, and I don't know who's what and where. I mean, that's just the way it is, right? Um, About 20% of patients experience adverse events within three weeks of discharge. Discharge in the post-acute period is a really scary place. And then this came along. This was a wonderful paper by Harlem Krumholtz, and it's well been described, But he described it, I think, really well, this whole concept of post-hospitalization syndrome. And if you're not familiar with it, let me describe it for you quickly. It's an acquired period of vulnerability derived from the allostatic and physiologic stress that patients experience in the hospital. What do we do to them? Well, we certainly don't let them sleep, that's for sure. Okay, Uh, there's noise. There's lights, people coming and going, the door's open, I can't get this, I can't get that. And then guess what? If you just now fall asleep, the nurse is going to show up five minutes later to do something, collect your vitals. And then after that, when you just fall asleep, it's 4 o'clock, 4.30, time to draw your blood. Well, nothing like turning the lights on, putting a tourniquet and ramming a needle in my arm to say, go back to sleep now. That, you know, that really works really well. So you can imagine it's not a great place to get sleep. And if you don't get sleep, you, do, you, you change your circadian rhythm, and I'm going to talk about that. We don't feed you, we just give you sugar water. Uh, you might have a lot of pain, you're going to receive a lot of medicines, especially if you're older, that's going to impact your cognition. And then I confine you to bed because I don't want to fall, so, you know, you're going to get deconditioned pretty fast. Man, I can't wait to go, <laughs> right? Um, so if you look at unrecognized, and I want to underline the word unrecognized, unrecognized that means the nurse doesn't pick it up i don't pick it up you don't pick it up everything's fine i'm sending you home about a third of patients have unrecognized low cognition you have to do these mini mental tests at discharge to pick it up but everything looks good they're getting it, it looks like they're getting it they're not in the head they understand everything's good out the door and you go okay so what And a month later most of it goes away okay so what so they're out cognitions off big deal come on you're making a big deal well let's look at this let's look at readmission data this is Medicare readmission data two-thirds of readmissions in the United States are for reasons unrelated to the reason they came in the hospital let me make sure you say I say that again so you came in the hospital for heart failure and ten days later you come in for a GI bleed I wasn't getting warfarin or heparin I come in for pneumonia and a week or two later I come in for heart failure so the point is that two-thirds of the problems are something that's completely unrelated and not even like close to why they came in the hospital to begin with. This is a nice paper out of, out of Cleveland Clinic that looked at readmission and cognition. And what they found was the single greatest factor that predicted readmission was this unrecognized cognitive impairment at discharge. Hmm, maybe I can start connecting the dots. So I'm doing stuff to people in the hospital that impairs a variety of factors, and maybe this cognition is just one of the signals that I can grasp. And by the way, if I have that signal, i double my readmission risk. So a lot of things are happening. There's a lot of noise, as I mentioned, lights, camera action, a lot of things that are going on that alter your circadian rhythm. And you go, why is that important? Well, it's important in everything that's alive uh we all have clock genes And now why and who cares well it doesn't make any sense for my body machinery to gear up and get ready for all the things that are happening today including eating food and digesting food and using that energy and putting in the right spots and getting ready to do all the stuff at two in the morning if i go to sleep at night i mean that would be a sort of an inefficient thing and likewise it wouldn't make any sense to have none of that ready to go when it's eight in the morning or nine or whatever it is when you're really rocking and rolling, okay? So these clock proteins regulate all these factors, okay? And they impact everything. So we make proteins, our genes make proteins. That's what they're doing right now in all of you. And 43% of them are controlled by a clock protein. It means it's timed. It's set to go off at this time, whether you like it or not. And you monkey with that, okay? Maybe nothing happens. Well, this is the impact on chronic circadian disruption. We know it increases heart attacks, we know it increases strokes, we know it increases cancer, we know it increases diabetes, injuries. In fact, the World Health Organization in 2007 called shift work a carcinogen. In 2007, just having a shift work. But this is the effect of a one hour shift in time on you and me. And it occurs unless you live in Arizona for daylight savings so across our nation that one-hour shift in time in your bed increases heart uh, stroke by 20 percent and heart attacks by 71 percent and after that 24 hours passes it goes right back down if I look at automobile accidents I look at fatalities on the highway all dramatically increase that one day a year and then it goes right back down Okay, that's a one-hour change in your bed now you're in a hospital bed nobody could sleep in that damn thing and I'm doing a lot more than one hour change what could it do this is wound healing you get a burn and whether well, you got that same level of burn to the same amount of body surface area the same depth the same everything versus day versus night and if it occurred during the day it healed sixty percent faster than if it occurred at night that's, that's legit This was a paper out earlier this year that if you do aortic valve replacement surgery in the morning or in the afternoon who do you think wins yeah it's the afternoon wins so when are heart attacks st elevation heart attacks the the highest in the mornings heart failure after a heart attack when does it occur most likely if you had a heart attack in the morning so it turns out that there are clock proteins that alter ischemic protection. It's the Reverba system, not that any of you care about the genomic piece of this, and it's safer in the afternoon. So the conclusion of this paper was, perioperative myocardial injury is transcriptionally orchestrated by circadian clock in patients undergoing aortic valve replacement. The Reverba antagonism is the pharmacologic strategy for cardio protection. Afternoon surgery might provide perioperative myocardial protection. You know how many, if you do this in your hospital, one out of if you just did this to the afternoon you would prevent one out of every 11 uh, uh, mace events you would eliminate one out of every 11 patients you would prevent one event so if you want to say okay I'm gonna do something real simple and I go back to my hospital I'm gonna push all the these cardiac surgeries or at least the valve surgeries to the afternoon you're gonna reduce cardiac events heart attacks readmissions heart failure Just by doing that because you have better ischemic protection in the afternoon than you do in the morning until we can come up with a pharmacologic way to block reverb of protein this is this is a clock protein so the environment of care so we said okay we know this we understand this well we understand that the hospital is a disaster from information we don't give you information and it's a disaster from a circadian rhythm perspective to our patients, what if we make some simple changes? What if we just do a few simple things and see if it makes a difference? Maybe it's just a waste of time. So we looked at this. Here's that guy again, but this time now, he gets an iPad that gives him all this. It tells him who his treatment team is. It's got a bio, it's got a picture of your physician and a little bio about her. And it's got a picture of your consultant and a little bio about him or her. And a a picture of the nurse. So now I oh, so that's who Julie is, and that's who Joe is, and Sam is. And now I can see who's who. Okay, it tells me what my diagnoses are, and then it gives me information if I want to read about it. it. Tells me what my meds are right now, and I can read about those if I want. It tells me about the upcoming schedule. Oh, I got a CT plan for this afternoon. I got a whatever, a cath or a pacemaker, whatever it might be. And moreover, it's giving my results real time. So I had labs done this morning. When they come back, I get to see them too. And I have vital, anything. There they are. Real time. Moreover, I can record the conversation with my doc. I mean, I don't know about you, any of you that make rounds, but I can tell you this happens all the time. I'm making rounds and they go, oh, doctor, you just missed my wife. She was here waiting for you, and now she's down getting caught, whatever. And I go okay I'm gonna try and weave my way back again but let's go over what we're doing and what we're going on they just hit record they play it back for themselves because they can't remember everything I told them as much as I want them to and they play it back for their spouse or whoever it might be um, educational resources schedule diagnostics etc we changed phlebotomy I don't know it was shocking to me to find out but the average phlebotomy time in my hospital is right there 457 go right back to sleep, I'm gonna come in your bed tonight in your hotel room, open the door, pull out the thing, turn on the lights, I mean, it was like your mom when you were a teenager getting you out of bed because you wanted to sleep late. You know, your mom would throw you on the floor. That's what she did with me, but the point is, yeah, now go back to sleep, right? So we said you can't come in unless it's stat or unless it's time, sometimes you have to get a time thing every X hours, I, I got that, we're not interfering with that, but just routine, just your regular stuff, Can't walk in the door till after six. I'm sorry. Too bad. And if the doctor's a little inconvenienced for a few minutes, so be it. Life's tough. Okay, our job is to improve patient care, not to make my coffee just the way I like it every single time. Don't get me wrong, I'm not against docs, but the point is let's not, you know, put the tail before the the dog. Okay, so we change it till after six.
0: Medicine doesn't stand still, and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org movingmedicine.
1: Now, I didn't get into the whole lighting, but there's a things called intrinsic photosensitive retinal ganglion cells that we all possess. It's the third receptor in your eye. I always thought there were two, and now I learned there's three, and these things are how you change your circadian rhythm. So all I gotta do is expose you to a little blue light, which is this, white light, blue light, and it changes my circadian clock. And that's why like your, like your iPhone or you all your laptops have that sort of you know, nightshade, they call it. Well, they can figure it out. We can't even do it in our place. So we put in red lighting in each of the rooms. And so if the nurse has to go in there just to change an IV bag or do something where they don't have to wake you up, that's the light they use. So it doesn't, in fact, impact those intrinsic retinal photosensitive photosensitive ganglion cells. You won't believe the noise that occurs in your hospitals. And you don't know until you measure it. So I started measuring, and it was like, oh, my God. So you know the World Health Organization actually has a recommendation that our hospitals be under 40 decibels at night? There is. It's been that way for years. I didn't know anything about it. And then I started measuring and you go oh my god whoo there's carts going down there at two in the morning you know stuff like that I mean you you learn all this stuff and so now I'm changing the wheels and the carts to rubber and I'm doing the thing you know that kind of stuff and I mean it's just stuff Um, and this has been well described in hospitals not just mine I mean all over the place so we monitor that and then this is how we obtain vitals there's no cuff anymore Um, this is using pulse wave velocity it's FDA approved so I collect Pulse, blood pressure, respiration, SAT, temperature, body position, every minute. And it goes right into the EMR. So nobody's waking them up. And it's mobile, it's wireless. They can go cruising all down the hall, do whatever they want to do. I'm collecting it. And moreover, I'm catching more data. And by the way, when there's an abnormality, it just pushes an alert to the nurse. So here's our outcomes real quickly. I'm not gonna go through all the outcomes, but I'll give you a couple of highlights. Um, If you look at HCaps data, Um, control we had a control wing Um, their overall mental and emotional health were obviously much higher Uh, understanding about their medicines obviously was significantly improved because people are thirsty for that information that we were never providing for them Uh, quiet around the room that's the one on the left yeah much more quiet since we made an effort to do something about it what's interesting if people sleep and you improve their circadian rhythm they have less pain and if you have less pain you need less pain meds interesting um, our length of stay dropped by about 10 hours and so the hospital administrators love this because 10 hours is a long time uh, for the same conditions this is all matched um, so our people are getting out faster um, and they're coming back less so our our deterioration going to ICU goes as dropped And our readmissions at 30 and 90 days, I'm just showing you 30 day, but I can show you 90 day, has significantly dropped as well. So these little changes have had rather dramatic effects. Okay, I've got a couple minutes left, I'm just gonna show you real quickly some potential around artificial intelligence. So I'm gonna pick on one thing, although we've done now several things, um, but let's pick on codes let's pick on patient deterioration and we we're talking about the inpatient setting so you know we, this happens every day for all of us so we all round our patients we're doing the right thing I'm excluding now just for the argument for the today's thing people that are DNRs and things like that or hospital I mean we're just looking at the general population that's coming into our general hospital wards we're staying out of the ICU for now and guess what happens codes occur all the time um, and so in 1953 we invented not me, the health system invented, the first one was in Copenhagen, an ICU, what a concept. And we'll take people that are really in the worst shape and put them there and hopefully we could do a better job and we have. And then in 1960, we invented this concept of CPR. So we'll train people and here's the algorithms you go through and you do it this way and here's how you do it well and that's good and that's bad and that's helped. And then later on in 1979, we started with a more advanced form of life support. And all these measures have made a difference, but they're all focused on the same thing. I've already fallen and broken my leg. I've already coded and now I'm trying to improve my response after the fact, right? And that's nothing wrong with that. But this is our data today. If you have a cardiac arrest in the United States, your chance of getting out alive is 25%, 75% mortality. If you're septic, you have a 15% mortality, but that doesn't include the 6% that are going to hospice. So that's 15% that die in your hospital. Another 6% are going to hospice care. And finally, if you have respiratory failure, it's a 40% mortality. So, you know, we keep on focusing on the same thing, which is good. I mean, not that we shouldn't, but maybe we should start looking upstream a little bit. So, you know, there's a bunch of standard conventional statistics that look at this. So this modified early warning system, it's looking at, you know, oh, are you a male or female? Are you this? Day? I'll show you what it looks like. And that's what's out in the literature. And the false positive rate, is out the, it's crazy. But, you know, it's capturing things here, and it's not very effective, because there's a lot of subclinical variation. It doesn't mean you're going to deteriorate. It's just physiologic variability. This is it. This is the most current effective tool that you have today across the planet in predicting risk of deterioration. It's called the modified early warning system It was published years ago. And I'm gonna walk, systolic blood pressure, you know, it's a scale, heart rate is a scale, respiratory rate, temperature, after you score, then you get a chance of ICU admission or death within 60 days, 7.9% in this case. By the way, that's me, I put myself in there. Don't worry, I did this about six months ago, so I'm not gonna die or be in the ICU in the next 60 days. But the point is, it's like, wow, that's pretty crappy. And moreover, 60 days, really? I mean, it's just not very good. And so we said, let's look at this and let's run across the spectrum. From the moment you come in the hospital, every five minutes throughout. So I can finally say, oh, you're really in subclinical deterioration. Could I predict that using artificial intelligence? That's the question. Well, it turns out that once you hit that area of deterioration, you got about four hours from the time you hit that where it's noticeable to when you will arrest. Four hours, well, four hours is enough time. Maybe I could do something. So could I predict it? So this is Muse, I don't know if you're used to looking at these uh, C statistics, but this is the area under the curve. Uh, a C statistic of 0.58 is horrible. <laughs> it's better, it's a little better than flipping a coin which is what that mu system is. If you get to 0.7, you got a good model. If you get to 0.8, it's a great model. This is ours right now. It's 0.89. So we can predict with basically 90% accuracy that this human being is gonna deteriorate rapidly in the next four hours now you go man that's pretty cool well that's only half the battle because now i can say the fish are over there go fish but if you don't go over there and go fish what good is it going to do so now you have to figure out an intervention so is there something we can do could we prevent the code just because i said you know something's going to happen doesn't mean we can do something about it this is an actual live patient and you can see he's doing pretty good at one in the morning but things are changing and more data's coming in and maybe he's changing, and then finally right at here, he crosses into the red. Now he's not coded here, but it's saying, okay, this is bad. And so that would then go to a rapid response team. Now many of us have rapid response team, but now this is a whole different deal. Now it's like saying, look, you gotta be diagnosticians. You gotta be able to say, because I don't know the answer. I know that a storm's coming. I can't tell you what's gonna happen. I can't tell you if it's long QT. I can't tell you if it's sepsis. I can't tell you, I can just say, bad things are happening in the next four hours figure it out and fix it right and so you have to be able to be a diagnostician as well as affect change we outfitted these people with Apple watches why not because we just want to be cool because I got four hours I don't have 14 hours I can't have you miss this message okay and nobody's using beepers anymore so, yes, it'll give you a direct message to your phone, but if your phone's in your back pocket or in your purse or the about, you missed it, this gives you a tap and you look and you go, oh, that's exactly what it says. So we're using billions of data points that are, it's consuming every minute on every patient and then saying, look here. Well, it worked. We ran a pilot. Uh, and the pilot wasn't even 24-7. Not that I didn't want to do it 24-7. It's just when you run a pilot, you're just begging and barring to steal to get people to go, okay, I need you to do this kind of stuff. So running a pilot Monday through Friday during the day, that alone, when you look at the totality of codes, reduced all codes. It just didn't move them around. It just reduced all codes by 44%. So imagine now we're running it 24-7, 365, and we'll see what the impact that will be. Um, So that's the impact of of AI, and I can tell you right now, right now I can predict who's going to get a pressure ulcer in my hospital before they get it. I can predict who's going to get C. diff in my hospital before they get it. So there's a lot of things, I mean there's more, but there's a lot of things that one can do if one has good clean data and is using machine learning in the proper fashion in those things so right now what we're doing is interventions and so now we're testing let's test this intervention versus that intervention and split test it to see what's going to be the best intervention for each of these patient safety issues we typically operate in that 10 percent of the pie if we looked at that whole pie in terms of behavior genomics environment social circumstances We typically live in that 10%, and if we're gonna make substantive changes going forward, we gotta open up that whole pie. Even modest interventions that impact timely communication, behavioral and social factors can really yield impressive results in chronic disease care. And finally, hospitals function to maximize efficiency of operations, sometimes at the expense of patient safety and quality. They don't do this on purpose, they just never realize it did. Opportunities are bound for improving outcomes and satisfaction.
0: That was Dr. Richard Milani, Chief Clinical Transformation Officer at Ashner Health, addressing how inpatient care can be improved. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Be sure to check out the other episode in this two-part series with Dr. Milani about innovation in the outpatient setting. To attend live presentations like Dr. Milani's, visit ama-assn.org/movingmedicine to become an AMA member and register for our annual meetings. You can also subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts on iTunes or visit ama-assn.org podcasts. Thank you for listening.